Merry second day of Christmas, everyone. Happy Boxing Day. Cheers to St. Stephen on his feast day. Happy birthday to me. Uh, it's also, yeah, many of you knew that already and said so thank you. Um, it's also my dad's birthday today. Um, so what better way to start than to talk about our favorite show, Star Trek The Next Generation. What an idyllic, utopian future humanity managed to co-create with other sentient species from across the quadrant. Oh, the 90s, what a time. In one episode, Lieutenant Commander Deanna Troy, ship's counselor, is just sleeping in her bed when a mysterious light flying through space enters the ship and then goes to dwell in her. As I started reflecting on this and writing about it, I recognized the issues of consent involved. It's complicated, it's still a family show, even with six kids, but Counselor Troy ends up pregnant. Not just pregnant, of course, alien power pregnant. And she goes to her new colleague, Dr. Pulaski, and on examination, they discover that this baby is developing abnormally fast. Like, it's going to be born in 36 hours. Well, that time goes by quickly. She gives birth to a healthy baby boy, whom she names Ian Andrew Troy. And I share that with you because my brother's name is Ian, and my middle name is Andrew, and when I looked up this episode, I was like, that's weird. In a day, Ian is a chatty four-year-old. The next day, he's eight. And by then, it's discovered that there's a mysterious radiation threatening the lives of the crew of the Enterprise. Ian goes to his mom and says, it's me. I'm the one threatening everyone. I have to go. And so he leaves. And this is the blow to new mom Counselor Troy, but Ian gives up his humanoid life to save the people on the ship. Now, I recap that episode for you, I mean, just for kicks a little bit, but also because a few months ago, I was having lunch, oh, there they are, saying goodbye. Oh. I was having lunch with Jane and Carlo, and they were coming up with good ideas for an after Christmas sermon. They both jokingly pointed out how quickly our church calendar goes from infant to full-grown man on a cross in just a few months. I mean, Jesus is no Ian Andrew Troy, but he does grow up rather quickly. Now, unbeknownst to me, as I was reflecting with them and thinking of this Star Trek episode, I didn't know that our lectionary scripture, pre-chosen for this Sunday after Christmas, was right in line with that kid on Star Trek. Jesus does grow up that fast this year. I'm reading our second lesson this morning from a new translation by ancient Greek literary scholar Sarah, Sarah Rudin, because I like to share new translations with you. It's not that different. A few, a few words are a little weird, but you'll, you'll be fine. Um, but let's read together Luke 2, 41 through 52. 
And every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the festival of the Pascha, Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the days of the festival were over, they turned back toward home. But the boy, Jesus, stayed back in Jerusalem, and his parents didn't know. Assuming he was in the group of travelers, they traveled for a day and then proceeded to search for him among their relatives and other people they knew. And when they didn't find him, they turned back to Jerusalem to search for him. And it transpired that after three days, they found him in the temple precinct, sitting amongst the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who listened was transported by his understanding and his responses. But when his parents saw him, they were shattered. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Look, your father and I were searching for you frantically all this time. But he said to them, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be busy with my father's concerns? But they didn't understand what he said to them. And he came down with them and went to Nazareth and minded them. But his mother kept all these things safe in her heart. And Jesus advanced in understanding as he advanced in age, and in the favor he found in the eyes of God and humankind. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray. Lord God, we are here to worship you this morning, to celebrate the birth of your son, and I guess the growth of your son. Lord, grow in us your spirit, your life, your way of being. Help us to bless those in our lives and in our neighborhoods. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, they grow up so fast. We were bouncing ideas off each other, Carlo and Jane and I, and one idea we considered was parenting tips from the holy couple. After all, God did choose Mary and Joseph for this responsibility. We heard, we heard it in song. We hear it in the text. Jesus turned out okay. Why not? But you know, most of us, no, not most of us, some of us, not all of us, are going to be parents or are parents at the moment. So I really only want to say one thing on parenting, and that is notice, please, that Jesus is better for the teachers, religious leaders, adults, than he is for his own parents. He impresses all these people, and they are transported by his brilliance. But he has no patience for mom and dad. And I hope these adults that were listening to Jesus said something good to Mary and Joseph, even as Jesus is kind of a punk. Because, you know, parents, we love to hear good things about our kids, especially when it feels like all we get is sass. In defense of kids everywhere, though, Mary and Joseph, they walk into the temple. It's been a long search, but they say, what were you thinking? <sighs> Nobody reacts well to that, not even the adolescent Lord God of the universe. And if we're the ones that have said something like that, we may not even know it's come out that way. So, parents, 
when you, like me, are at your wit's end, you know, we're only halfway through break. Nancy's only like four days into break. Remember that Jesus himself would have given you a headache too. I think the phrase, were you born in a barn, conjures up some of that parental consternation at their kids. And you know, Jesus literally was. One person for whom Jesus is least good in this story is Joseph. And that's who I want to talk about more this morning. Old Joey Jojo. Not to take away anything from Mary or mothers at all, but the silent emotion of Joseph is what got me in the scripture this week. Joseph, who, who doesn't abandon Mary when his culture says to do so, he, he endures the mocking of his neighbors who remember that Mary left town for Elizabeth's and then came back with a baby bump. Joseph, whose last appearance in the timeline is this story, he does his duty to God and family, walking 60 miles each way, uphill both ways, to celebrate the Passover every year in Jerusalem, the place where God sets God's name. They celebrate according to the law that Ben read for us this morning. And when Joseph's oldest boy is just about to official manhood, maybe, you know, like you trust him with the younger siblings, that kid doesn't show up at the campfire on the return trip home. I think we can all imagine the panic that must have gripped him, and maybe the fury, too. Like Kevin McAllister's parents in Home Alone. He's got to reassure Mary, hope for the best, cope with his own feelings, and retrace his steps to find the lost son. But this prodigal is not coming back to Joseph. Joseph has to leave the 99 other pilgrims headed back to Nazareth while he and Mary go out looking for Jesus. And when they finally find Jesus after several days of searching, how does Joseph fare? What does Jesus say? He's not my dad. Right? They find, him, they find Jesus, and Mary says, your father and I have been worried sick. But Jesus replies, oh, Mom, obviously I'd be about my real dad's business. What a gut punch for Joseph. It feels like just yesterday he was a little swaddled baby. But now the kid knows. He knows. Is this the thanks Joseph gets? All right, I'm going to pause the pity party. There are some reassurances here in the story for us. Two in particular. It seems like in this story, Jesus is saying Joseph isn't his dad or that they don't belong to each other. Many of us, I think, can lose sight of how Jesus really claims us. And, or we're not sure that we've really made him our own either. Fine. We're not sure, not in a father-son sort of dynamic that is going on here, but in a savior-saved way or a teacher-disciple way or even a mutual beloved sort of way. 
Does Jesus really claim us? Do we really claim him? And, and those are reasonable questions because doubt is certainly reasonable. But if we take Joseph as our model this morning, they are also ridiculous questions. Because of course Joseph is Jesus' father, and of course Jesus is Joseph's son. In all the ways that matter, they belong to each other. Joseph greeted shepherds in Bethlehem. He escaped to Egypt. He trudged the long road back to Galilee, protecting Jesus at every step. Jesus grew up at Joseph's knee and learned the family trait. They belong to each other. In a different way, but a similar way too, Jesus is yours and you are his. He's ours. Let any doubt about that fade. Even before you could do so on your own, God claimed you in the waters of baptism. <laughs> Baptized or not, God claims you. Even before you understood the full meaning of the Lord's Supper, you dined at his table. As any of us understand the full meaning of that meal. Even though we stumble, misrepresent, underwhelm as disciples of Jesus, he calls us his own, calls us his own, and comes looking for us as if we are snarky 12-year-olds, which we are. He was one of us through and through. Be reassured that he is yours and you are his. And even with that reassurance, we can lose track of him sometimes. We lose sight of Jesus. One of the reasons we gather for worship is so that we don't get too far away from our Lord. And now Joseph and Mary are following the law and worshiping in a different way. But they lose track of Jesus too in that parade of pilgrims. Even when you think you are following the way of God, it's easy to lose track of Jesus. And while we might lose him, he does not lose us. He's always about his father's business. Which brings us back to that question. Which father are we talking about? What is God's business anyway? Well, we have a whole Bible, I mean, it's thick, uh, that gives various answers. But I would suggest to you a top three answer would be restoring or raising dead things to life. You've heard me say this before. Whether it's creating humans from dust, restoring dry bones, celebrating the lost that are found, or actually raising a dead son, God's business, the good news is resurrection. Life wins. And in our story this morning, how long does it take Mary and Joseph's missing, lost, possibly dead son to be restored to them? Three days. And where is he lost and then found? Jerusalem. In this story, Luke is pointing ahead to Jesus' final days, two decades or a few short months from now. God's business is resurrection. And what about old Joey Jojo? Well, 
Joseph is a builder, a carpenter, a stone worker. A builder in Nazareth in the first decades of the first century would have probably been involved in rebuilding a whole city that was destroyed during Jesus' lifetime. Joseph's business is building and rebuilding. So you see, the business of Jesus' two dads are not in conflict. They go together. Even where they find him fits into this. The thing that was under construction when Jesus was 12 years old, being rebuilt, the temple, God's house. Whenever you lose your sense of Jesus' presence, or even if you're not sure you've ever felt Jesus' presence, you can bet he's still in the business of raising you up from the dead places, rebuilding your heart's broken spaces. At the end of Christmas week, I'm pretty tapped out. I don't know about you. Uh, unlike my colleagues Dave and Erica and Michael and Carlo and Rita and Lauren and all the musicians, you know, I haven't really been responsible for much. But I'm still tired. Lucy's birthday was Wednesday. My sister-in-law Aaron's birthday is Christmas Eve. Then Christmas. I love it, but I get tired. My sense of Jesus' presence hardly ever overlaps with big family gatherings. I'm sort of a solitude guy. And yet, in that exhaustion, that is where God can meet me. Some of us had Christmas this year without a loved one, right? We didn't laugh with Tommy at the college brunch. I won't see my grandma when I go home this week. We all didn't see George Rose in a suit or a Christmas sweater. And there are hundreds of thousands of others lost to the pandemic this year. All of us grieve and heal in different ways, and we may not heal fully in this life. But Jesus is about the business of his dads, raising up those we've lost into the next life and rebuilding our broken hearts here however slowly. And maybe everything, or almost everything, is going well for you this week. Celebrate it. You know, at any moment, you can misplace a 12-year-old. And if things are going well, you might be the person acting as the hands and feet of Jesus to reach down and pull someone out of that dark space. Who needs building up? Who needs raising up? It's kind of the primary way God does his resurrecting is through other people. We started this morning thinking about the rapid growth of a TV alien and of Jesus himself from Christmas to Easter in a few short months. You can say what you want about the church's holidays just replacing Roman and Jewish holidays, and that's mostly true, but I think there's another element. We remember the life of Jesus in these few short months because these are the darkest, coldest months of the year in Europe where our church liturgies were formed. December, December to April is dark, cold, wet, without harvest, without hope. The joy of a baby born, the life of our Lord, Lenten preparation and Easter itself all figure into this short time. 
Most of the rest of the year is, in our church calendar, is called ordinary time. Ordinary time. When people are farming and working and hustling and harvesting to put food on the table. If the church, for all its faults, wanted the life and the love of Jesus to get into our bones and our souls, well, we had to pack that life into the dark months when hope was most needed, the plantings had yet to yield crop, and, and people were able to be in the pews. We fit these stories in when the people needed the very most rebuilding and resurrecting from the darkness to carry on. And we do it year in and year out. But God instructs the people to remember the Passover because we need to remember that often, every year, every year. Between the post-Christmas lull and the after-Christmas spike, these next few weeks are going to be interesting, to say the least. As we stumble into the new year, with news bleak and skies still dark, let us remember and trust that he is with us. We are his, and he will continue rebuilding and raising us up. We don't need to go frantically searching for him. He's already about the business of both his dads. Merry Christmas, my friends, and Happy New Year, too.